Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Be Good, brought to you by BVNH Consulting, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavioral change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the fields of behavioral science, psychology, and neuroscience to get to know more about them, their work, and their application to uh, emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder and CEO of BVNH Consulting, and with me is my uh, colleague and friend, Suzanne Kirkendall, CEO of BVNH Consulting in North America. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Eric. Thank you for having me on this episode because I'm very excited to be meeting and introducing our guest, Professor Hal Hirschfield. Hal is a distinguished professor of marketing, behavioral decision-making, and psychology at UCLA's Anderson School of Management, where he holds the UCLA Anderson Board of Advisors Term Chair in Management. His research, which sits at the intersection of psychology and economics, examines the ways we can improve our long-term decisions. His work has been published in esteemed academic journals across business and psychology and has garnered recognition in publications like the Harvard Business Review, Scientific American, and Psychology Today. Additionally, his research has captured substantial media attention with features in renowned outlets, including The Guardian, BBC, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and NPR. Hal consults with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, as well as many other prominent financial services firms like Fidelity, First Republic, Prudential, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, and Avantis. Very recently, Hal has published an amazing book called Your Future Self, How to Make Tomorrow Better Today, which will be the focal point of our discussion today. Hal, welcome to the Be Good podcast. Thank you so much, uh, Suzanne and Eric. It's really nice to be here with you both. Before discussing your uh, amazing uh, book, we have loved with Suzanne this book, we would like to hear a little more about your background and your career. I think you successfully earned a PhD in psychology from Stanford University. Could you tell us about how you became interested in psychology? When and why did you become interested in long-term decision-making, which is at the earth of your interest, I think? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, my parents are both clinical psychologists. So what I knew I wanted to do growing up was to not be a psychologist. But of course, uh, you know, our best laid plans. So, um, you know, when I went to graduate school, I um, really fell um, fell for the research of Laura Karstensen, who is an expert in aging and decision making and um, really sits at sort of the the policy uh, intersection as well. <clears throat> and um in working with her, I realized that there was a role for understanding psychology and applying it to societal problems. And, and it was it was that sort of realization that led to conversations she and I had. And this is, you know, years ago, almost 20 years ago, when we started our conversations um, about the retirement crisis in America. And that then led to other conversations. And quickly, I started realizing that I wasn't just interested in retirement, but other sort of long term decisions 
And now I look and say all of these things that I'm interested in, retirement being one of them, but health being another and ethics and so on, all of them do boil down to sort of trade-offs between now and later. And that was really the, the impetus for my interest in these topics. Uh, did you have uh, any mentors who significantly impacted your career journey? Do you have uh, any researcher or individual who have influenced your work? Uh, well, yes. So Laura Carstensen, my um, academic advisor, certainly was uh, one of the, the main ones. Um, and then I uh, uh, later did work with Dan Goldstein, um, who's at Microsoft Research, and he was enormously helpful in thinking through ideas, as well as Brian Knudsen, who's a uh, neuroeconomist. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've been lucky to have many mentors over the over the years. But those are the ones who sort of most most impacted this particular work that that we're talking about. So, Hal, as I mentioned earlier, your new book, Your Future Self, How to Make Tomorrow Better Today, was just published in June 2023, a couple of months ago. Before we discuss the content of it, can you tell us more about the inspiration behind writing it? How did the idea for the book come to you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I mean, so some of it was uh, from the fact that I've been doing this research for so long. You know, I've been doing this work for, well, almost 15 years now. Um, and at some point, it looked like there's a lot of work out there, not just by me, but by colleagues and other folks. And I wanted to organize it uh, the best I could and put it out there for not just academics, but you know, um, the public and behavioral science practitioners uh, and, um, you know, financial advisors and coaches and folks who sort of sit, you know, at this place where they're trying to help people do more of the things that they say that they want to do. That was really the, the inspiration to try to get all this out there because academic journals are fantastic, but they're not really picked up by the rest of the world outside of academia. <laughs> Right, absolutely. So I know you mentioned that your goal is to help us create the future that we want. Before we get into the details of how to do that, could you give us the main takeaway? If the audience walks away with one thing, what should that be? If there's a main takeaway from the book, it's that we're often disconnected from our future selves and trying to understand who we will become and who we want to become and foster a closer relationship can help us do more of the things that we want to do today that will ultimately help us in the future. That is the nutshell version <laughs> of, of the book. But of course, you really do want to buy it to get the full version. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we have time to go into the, uh, the detail. And uh, I would like to uh, start by discussing a concept that you call mental time travel. Can you describe what this means and provide maybe a, a few examples? Sure. So mental time travel, it sounds like it's fancier than it is, but it is something all of us do all of the time, right? So if you have spent any bit of time today thinking about what you will do for lunch later or for dinner later or whether you will go out or stay in tonight, that is a form of mental time travel. Um, and if you think at all about, you know, what does the coming weekend look like or next month? And then if you step forward in time and think back to how you feel now, all of these sort of trips in time in our minds are forms of mental time travel. And it is something that we all do and we all do it regular, regularly. Um, But we also do have problems with it, which I'm sure we'll discuss. But that's the general idea of mental time travel. Why is uh, the ability to 
mentally travels through time, influential in our decision-making process, particularly in relation to our future selves. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the basis for any sorts of decisions that involve consequences now and at some point later. Because in theory, when we are making a choice that involves a trade-off between something we could get right now or something more or less we could get later, what we're having to do is, in theory, we're, what we're having to do is step ahead and say, well, how will I react to this? Um, now, we also may fail to take that trip. <laughs> we may not really think about it. Um, but at the core of any of these sorts of longer or even medium-term decisions is the ability to travel through time in our minds or mentally time travel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was mentioning uh, just before our conversation to Suzanne that yesterday evening I had a difficult decision to make. My wife prepared a wonderful chocolate cake <laughs> and I know it's not so good for my health. I am already quite overweight, <laughs> but it was too difficult for me to resist. Uh, so we will talk about solution later in this conversation. Well, but I think it was exactly what you mentioned. That cake to me sounds like it's worth worth going for. So I don't know. Uh... <laughs> so uh, you mentioned something I think which is uh, really uh, crucial that we aren't a central self, but a kind of aggregation of many, many distinct selves. Uh, we have multiple versions of ourselves. And could you explain the meaning behind this? Sure. So, I mean, it, it's worth noting that this is an idea that's been kicked around by philosophers and theorists for, you know, de decades, if not, if not centuries. Um, yeah. Um, and the basic idea is that rather than sort of one single self, you know, one entity through time, a better way to think of ourselves is by saying that we are a collection of selves. You know, so if I say, are you the same Eric as you were when you were an eight-year-old boy? You might say, well, yeah, I was Eric then, I'm Eric now, but I'm sure lots has changed since then. You know, I don't know, maybe, maybe you didn't wear glasses then and you do now, or maybe you lived in a different place and you are, maybe you have a different group of friends in your job and all these things, some of those are surface level, some of those are deeper. Um, but it becomes hard to say, oh, I'm just the same over time and maybe a better way to capture the sort of reality of identity over time is that we are better thought of as sort of multiple selves. There's earlier selves and later selves. And, and, and we can think about that now as well, that we are our present self, and eventually there will be some future self and many selves along the way. Mm -hmm. And is there, if we have many self, is there some stability in our traits? Or do we change over, over time? Yeah, this is a, you know, a hotly researched topic. Um, And it turns out it, it depends on uh, how you ask the question, uh, you know, begets different answers, right? So um, in some ways, we do change over time. If you look at personality research, um, over a 10-year period of time, one of our big five personality traits has a pretty decent chance to change, 
But that also means that the other four big five personality traits don't change, right? So, and over our lifespans, we may end up being similar in terms of our personality rank. So if I'm, you know, the shyest among my group of friends growing up, I may I may become less shy over time, but I may be still pretty shy relative to my peers. So the, the point is that there's no easy answer here, that um, some things remain stable and some things do not. And of course, there are big life events that can disrupt personality uh, in, you know, quote unquote, positive ways and negative ways. Um, but uh, there, there's, there's not a sort of easy way to answer that question other than to say it depends on which aspects of personality you look at. <laughs> Could we uh, say that um, um, one, it's very difficult to answer to this question, but our feeling is we are the same, even if we have a, a change. So... Uh, what uh, could we say that uh, um, our future self, if we talk about the future self, is a different person? Uh, you mentioned, I think, a kind of stranger to ourselves right now. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, and that what the research suggests is that in many ways we do think of our future selves as if, as if they are different people. Um, so some of the sort of cognitive psychology research has suggested that um, in the mind's eye, our future self looks like a different person. Um, my own neuroscience research suggests that the neural activity that's elicited by our thoughts of our future self looks more like the neural activity that's elicited by thinking of another person. Um, now, the, the degree of relationship to that future self can vary, and I'm uh, and we can discuss that. But it may be the case that on some levels, our future selves seem like different people to us. Um, and, and with enough sort of distance in time, with enough of a lack of emotional connection, our future self might seem like almost like a stranger to us. Mm -hmm. Which has an impact on our current uh, decision. So what are the implications? It's all for the choice we make in the present yeah i mean th this is the this is the most important question in a way um because if we think of our future selves as if they are strangers it it holds important implications for how we decide what to do today and i mean if that if that's not if that's a little abstract the one way to think about this is how do we interact with strangers in our lives um, how likely are we, in other words, to do things for their benefit? So if a total stranger walked up to me on the street and asked me to, I don't know, help him, you know, clean out his house tomorrow, I think I would, I, you know, I've got a lot of other things going on tomorrow. It's my kid's first day of school and so on and so on. And I would probably say, I'm sorry, buddy, but I can't help you. Um, if that's how I think of my future self, if he is a stranger to me, in a way, anytime we have this decision, whether to eat the chocolate cake or refrain, you know, whether to save extra or, you know, and spend less and so on and so on, it's a little bit like our future self is the stranger asking us to do a favor. And if we think of that future self as a stranger, then it's perhaps understandable that we might say, sorry, buddy, <laughs> I'm going to eat the chocolate cake. <laughs> yeah. And now, I mean, I've, I've, you know, of course, I'm, I'm making this a little bit extreme because 
there's of course people in our lives who we would help, right? So, you know, if my, if, you know, my, if my dad who's in his seventies, if I were to somehow, you know, if he were to call me today and say, can you help me out with some stuff around the house? I would probably say, do you need it done tomorrow? And if he said, yeah, I'd probably say, all right, I'll figure out what I can do to help you. Uh, and if I feel as connected to my future self as I do to my loved ones, to my own parents and my kids and my spouse and my best friends, then I may be considerably more likely to do things for their benefit to say, yeah, okay, I will, <laughs> I will re rearrange things to help you out. Um, and I think that's, that may be the crux there. So how we have established that we think about our future self as someone else effectively. And of course, we've talked about how that raises some challenges for making good decisions today that affect our future selves. I want to dig into this a little bit more because in the book, you said there are three big mistakes that we tend to make with this sort of decision making. So the first one, which you call missing our flight, is about being overly anchored on present day concerns. Can you explain the psychological reasons for this? Sure. So, I mean, the, you know, the basic idea there is that we may end up almost missing the future because we get so anchored on the present. Um, it's not as if we don't know the future exists. It's just that we get so sort of mired in today that we fail to plan adequately for the future. Now, you asked, now, why, why, did that, why does that happen? Part of the reason is understandable, which is that we live in the present. That's, that's the time period we're in. Um, and so understandably, we should focus on it. The problem arises when we focus on it to too great of a degree. Um, in almost an extreme manner. And, and part of the reason that that happens is because everything that's happening in the present feels more emotional than everything that's happening in the future. And another reason is that the present is certain and the future is uncertain. And when push comes to shove, we've sort of, you know, been, uh, we've evolved to focus on the certain rather than the uncertain. This is, you know, of course, the <laughs> impetus for the phrase, you know, bird in the hand is better than two in the bush, right? Because might as well take what you can get right now. Um, that was uh, much more applicable when the future was much more uncertain than it is now for many people who are fortunate enough to live in uh, more certain environments and context. Great. And so the second reason, which you call poor trip planning, is about trying to think about the future, but only doing it in a surface level way. How do you explain this? I know you mentioned a few things in the book, but my my favorite was the yes damn effect. Can you tell our listeners about that? Sure. So, you know, the 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 basic idea behind this time travel mistake is that we do plan ahead, but we do so in a way that's only surface level. You know, so the analogy that I that I like to use is the idea that we have booked a trip for ourselves and we've essentially stopped at the flight and the hotel. And then we get there and realize I, I should have, I should have planned more. And, you know, some of the sites that we wanted to see are all booked up and you know we can't, we can't do anything other than walk around, which could be great, but like maybe not exactly the trip that we had uh, been thinking about. Um, so, you know, what, one example of doing this is what, what some researchers have called the yes damn effect, which is, I think a very common experience of being asked to do something at some point in time in the future, three, four months out 
you look at your calendar, you see that it's wide open and you say, yes, I can do that thing. And then time goes by and your calendar slowly fills up. And then it's time to do the thing you said yes to the talk at work or the volunteering activity or whatever it is. And you're really busy. And your first thought is, damn it, I wish I hadn't said yes to that. And the the gist here is that we are, again, sort of being unfair to our future selves because we're committing them to do something that we may not want to do right now only because we're thinking about the future on some surface level way and not really deeply analyzing, would that be something I'd want to do right now? Now, of course, sometimes it's good. You know, sometimes it's the only way we can do things, right? You know, about a year ago, around this time, I was asked to be the referee for my daughter's um, soccer team. And I really she's over there. I really did not want to do it. Um, but it was like, <laughs> it was the only way that she could get to play with her friends. And, you know, I looked ahead and thought, you know what? Um, it's the calendar is pretty empty. I can do this. Now, I also thought carefully about, you know, what were the sort of cost benefits there and said, you know what? I don't think I'd want to, I, I actually considered the yes damn effect and I said will I end up you know sort of regretting this choice um and one of the pieces of advice that I had gotten in thinking about the yes damn effect was balance out whether or not the benefits that are going to accrue to someone else are outweighed or not by the cost that will come to you in this case I said you know what the benefits to her are going to be far greater than the cost to me of having to sit through referee training, which was terrible, um, and spend the time on the field. And it turned out the time on the field wasn't that bad. It was the eight hours of like training for seven-year-old girl soccer that I had to do. Um, but in this particular case, uh, I said yes, and I didn't eventually say damn because I think I had thought about it <laughs> deeply enough. We, we just had a conversation with uh, Suzanne last week with uh, Vanessa Patrick who has written a wonderful book, The Power of Saying No, yes. which is yes. clearly about uh, this. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's a wonderful book. So the third mistake that we make, you call packing the wrong clothes, which is about failing to recognize the ways in which the future may be different from the present. Why do we make this mistake? So, you know, this is the, the the analogy I like to use is that you've, you know, again, we're going on a trip. Of course, this is the, the, the theme. Um, and, you know, let's say that you're in a cold weather place and you're going somewhere warm and you pack for that and you say, I know it's going to be warm there, but it's cold outside right now. So I, I still am going to throw some extra sweaters in um, or vice versa. And you get there and you realize I've, you know, wasted half of my suitcase with this stuff and didn't need it. And now I don't have some of the things I do need. Um, the gist here is that we sort of unfairly think that our future selves, preferences, contexts, environment will be overly similar to our present selves. And we end up projecting the interests of our present selves onto our future selves. Um, now, I think this is a particularly dangerous mistake because we have convinced ourselves that we are planning. We can convince ourselves that we are thinking ahead, but we're just not doing it in a way that's necessarily fair to our future selves. And we fail to recognize that our preferences and likes and dislikes 
and values may change uh, in the future. Um, and so the, the problem can arise when we lock ourselves into plans or when we lock ourselves into commitments or career strategies, you know, careers that uh, are, are, are paths that our future selves may not necessarily want. Now, of course, some of these things we can get out of, but if we sort of fail to, to appreciate that over time we should need to revisit plans and that our interests can change, um, then we can end up doing things and we say, why are we, why are we, still, why are we still going down this path if, if for no, no other reason than inertia? Um, Al, uh, I would like to talk about uh, solution because uh, now we have understood, I think it's clear that there are fundamental reasons why we often neglect our future interests and shelves when making current decisions. And the problem is uh, this can lead to significant bad consequences. Um, however, as uh, with uh, Suzanne, practitioner in behavioral science, we recognize that knowledge alone is not enough to drive behavioral change and to change the way we make uh, uh, decisions. So you offer a solution that can help us to reach a, a fantastic objective, which is to make tomorrow better decision uh, today. Something you refer to as the landing of our time travel. So. I have some question about uh, that. Your first solution is about making the future closer. Could you tell us why this is a powerful uh, uh, approach uh, and how we can effectively, because it is uh, what is, I think, uh, very uh, uh, challenging, effectively implement the solution? Absolutely. Um, you know, so the basic idea here is that if we are having difficulty with these sorts of time travel trips, um, part of the reason for the difficulty may be that we don't fully identify with our future selves, that they, as we said earlier, may in some ways feel like a stranger to us. And so one solution is to try to make that future self more of a friend, more of a loved one, if you will. Um, and so I, I I talk about the idea of bringing that future self closer. And what I mean by that is really sort of heightening the emotional connection between who we are today and who we will become. Um, now, I, uh, in my research and other research, um, other, other researchers' uh, work, we've found that enhancing that connection um, can lead to, quote unquote, better decisions. Um, and by better decisions, I mean the likelihood that people do more of the things that they say that they that they want to do. You talk about uh, visualizing the future self. Could you explain more of this? Right. So, you know, one of the methods that we've used is to visualize the future self, to sort of show people what they will look like in the future. Now, of course, this is there's something a little bit gimmicky about this. I and, mean, you know, when I first started working on this, it was mostly a demonstration. I say, look, here is a way to make the future self more vivid. Um, you know, of course, there are many different sort of age progression algorithms. In fact, TikTok has just released one that is quite good. Um, uh, and the idea is to use technology to uh, sort of mimic the experience of aging. Um, and in doing so, um, we are essentially trying to 
um, make the future more vivid. Now, vivid is vivid is emotional, and emotions are the types of things that that drive behavior. Now, you know, we've found in my own work. I mentioned Dan Goldstein earlier. Um, in one of our studies, we worked with a bank in Mexico, fifty thousand customers, and half of them. All, everybody got messages saying it's important to make contributions to your long-term savings account. Half got the experience of being able to interact with their age-progressed self, and half did not. And those folks who did were more likely to make a contribution uh, to their retirement account. You know, you know I, and I want to mention here, this is because we are talking to behavioral science, uh, the behavioral science community and practitioners, <clears throat> this is these are relatively small effects. I mean, I think we all know that any sort of intervention outside of automatic enrollment often <laughs> results in small effects. Um, that particular study, the one I just mentioned, which is uh, s supposed to be out any day now, um, it was a very low touch intervention. In other words, this is just sort of the message to save and emails. I, you know, something I've wondered over the years is how much stronger could these interventions be if coupled with more of a conversation? Now, of course, that's harder to scale. Um, but, you know, th there's there's something somebody in the behavioral science community needs to write the paper about uh, when it makes sense to scale something up and have smaller effects versus when it makes sense to drill down um, and have larger effects. You know, what's the what, what's the sort of cost benefit analysis there? Anyway, that's that would that would be something I would love to read about. <laughs> and uh, you mentioned also the role of uh, context. We are used to say as behavioral scientists that uh, context is absolutely uh, key. Uh, what could we do regarding uh, the environment, the context, to help us to make better decisions for our future self? Right. I mean, you know, one thing to consider here is, I mean, this is not. Uh, my intuition, right? I mean, Richard Thaler has been saying this for, well, probably decades now, you know, make it easy, right? And so, you know, if I, if I show you your older self uh, out of context, you know, uh, divorced from whatever the decision that I'm trying to change is, like, I, I doubt it would make an impact, right? But if I'm trying to introduce some sort of future self vividness intervention, uh, get you to have a conversation with your future self, show you your future self, have you think about them. And I've coupled it with um, an end of life planning context or, uh, you know, retirement saving or signing up for a better, you know, like a diet plan or whatever it is. That's when I think we've now created a context that makes it easy for you to sort of make the decision. Of course, you know, this is a point that applies to everything in behavioral science, remove as many sort of pieces of friction as we can. Um, to get someone to do the thing that they otherwise would say that they want to do, right? And I think that's, to me, the most important idea with, with context. Uh, you also suggest some uh, actionable tactics, including adopting commitment device, creating plan to dedicate ourselves to a course of action or adapting uh, our environment to align with long-term goals. Could you provide an explanation and maybe some practical example of for each of these uh, tactics. Yeah, so you know, one of the other things I talk about um, in my research and in the book is this idea that you know we can we can make plans, um, but we may also end up uh, messing things up for our future selves. My student Megan Weber has 
is working on what I think is a really compelling model, which is that you know she talks about the researchers have always talked about the planner doer model that there's the planner and then there's the doer and she adds in the the reflector as well so that there's the planner the version of me that plans to do things and then my sort of eventual future self that's the reflector who wants to look back and say i you know i i ate healthy <laughs> and then there's the doer who says ah but i'm faced with this chocolate cake and i don't want to eat healthy right um now the the idea here is that um it can sometimes be very hard for the the self who is the doer to do the things that the planner wanted to do and that the reflector will look back on uh, positively. Um, now, in terms of concrete solutions, you know, of course, other researchers have talked about commitment devices. I really like talking about them in through the lens of current and future selves because I think it adds another layer of sophistication, which is that the current self has to make a commitment device plan that is strong enough or sort of, you know, onerous enough that will actually, you know, constrain behavior, but not so strong that we end up sort of throwing it away eventually. Um, you know, concretely, um, stick.com with two Ks, of course, this is a wonderful website that allows you to make commitment device, uh, contracts. Um, I also love, you know, the idea of taking options away so that we don't end up straying, right? And so um, the K-safe is this fantastic, you know, it's an uh, electronically timed safe that you can put things in. And you, so it was, you, the, the classic example is to put a snack in it, but I think it's become much more than that. You know, you can put your phone in it, which I do um, at night, um, your TV remote, right? Um, drugs, alcohol, anything that represents a temptation, lock it away so that the version of me who gets tempted can't access it, right? Um, uh, that So th those are just two of the sort of concrete examples of coming up with a plan that puts guardrail, guardrails on our future behavior. Al, you uh, address and you have just uh, talked about uh, uh, a very familiar concept to behavioral science practitioners, echoing uh, Richard Taylor mantra, make it... Uh, easy uh, and you recommend making present day sacrifice easier to uh, undertake could you elaborate on the strategy you propose to achieve our goals about temptation bundling or making big tasks smaller celebrating the present uh, could you elaborate a little on this yes yeah, so you know it, this this idea i think is a little different than making it easy per se. So when I think of behavioral science practitioners saying make it easy, I think the the gist there is make it easy to make the choice that you want to make. Now, when I talk about making when I talk about this general concept in the in the book, what I'm talking about is making sacrifices feel less like a sacrifice, right? And so it it stems from the recognition that whenever we want to do good by our future selves, it's often our present selves who have to be the ones to sort of bear the brunt of the, you know, quote unquote sacrifice. And I put quotes around that because not all of these things have to be thought of that way, right? So, you know, it's when I save for the future, I could think of that as not being able to spend as much, or I could think about that as, wow, I'm doing something good. And, you know, what pride do I take in that, right? Um, now, on a more sort of practical and concrete level, part of what I'm talking about here is 
what are the ways that we can sort of dial down the pain, you know? And so I, I mentioned in the book, one of the, one of my favorite studies that I've been a part of, this is with Shlomo Benartzi and Steve Shu, where we asked people if they wanted to save either $150 a month or $5 a day, same amount of money, but $5 a day feels psychologically easier. Cause you know, m- many people can think of a whole host of things that fall into the category of $5 a day that I would happily give up. It's considerably harder to think of things that fall into the category of $150 a month. That feels like a big lifestyle change, right? Um, And so it's easier to say yes to $5 a day. That sacrifice becomes less painful and uh, more, you know, quote unquote, easy. Uh, And in fact, 30 people sign up when it's $5 a day compared to 7% who sign up when it's $150 a month, right? And this is, I think, to me, one of my favorite examples of of dialing down the pain on the quote-unquote sacrifice. And could you say more about temptation bundling? We discussed a little uh, with Katie Milkman some months ago about this idea also. Of course, yes. And, and Katie, of course, is the, you know, the... Um, the 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 inventor of this, if you will, or, you know, at least the one who's popularized it and, and published about it. And the general idea with temptation bundling is that we couple our, you know, painful sacrifices with things that feel good in a way, right? So, you know, her classic example is, I can't listen to the next chapter of my audiobook unless I'm going to the gym or unless I'm going on a run or whatever it may be. And you are bundling, in other words, a temptation, the listening to my next chapter of the audiobook or my true crime podcast <laughs> um, with the painful thing, the workout, right? And now this makes the workout uh, more pleasurable. You know, I think um, this is, you know, there's, 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 there's long been a history of, of this sort of thing. And I, I, I love the way that she's put a frame around this. Um, but I think we often have the intuition that hard work is meant to be or self-control tasks are meant to be painful and that doesn't have to be the case in fact the reality is we will be more likely to follow through if we make if we make them feel better uh and feel easier to undertake so hal we're getting close to the end of our conversation so i'd like to ask you a final question before i hand over to eric to wrap things up we've been talking about how we can make better decisions for our future selves on more of an individual level but there's also a really huge topic that's a collective challenge as well, which is what's happening and what will happen to the planet because of our past and current decisions. So obviously there are gonna be severe consequences of climate change that are going to impact future generations even more than they impact us. And so if we have difficulty considering our future selves, what about future generations who really are strangers? What do we do about that? So, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, right? This is another example of having a difficult time identifying with a future self in this particular case, it's sort of the future collective, right? And, you know, if you think about it, if we have a hard time identifying with our own future selves in our lifetime, then it it almost by definition feels like it should be that much more difficult to, to identify with future generations of people, people whom we don't even know at this point, right? Um, and so, you know, you, you ask what can be done about it. Of course, this is, you know, the, 
the focus of many policymakers and academic researchers and behavioral scientists. Um, you know, there's, I think th this is a problem that's ripe for everything from structural changes to, you know, nudges where we're sort of changing decision-making environments to boosts where we're changing the, the messaging, right? And, you know, I, I don't think... Um, I don't think the message of this will harm future generations is the is necessarily the right message because of course this has been a message that's been out there for for a long time. Now, I have a a research question right now, which is, uh, are there other ways to talk about future generations that will be more impactful, um, uh, or would it be better to bring all of the consequences to the present? You know, it, it fifteen twenty years ago saying that the sea, you know sea levels will rise in the future and so on and so on um w w you know was to some extent all we can do now of course you know unfortunately i think more and more people can see the impact of climate change happening all around us and making that connection and saying look these things are happening right now and look what's happening um is one way to sort of bring the future closer to the present and and feel the pain right now and see what we can do to change it but um I, more than anything, this is a multi, multiply determined problem that needs, you know, multiple solutions. Uh, Al, uh, at BVNOT Consulting, we work with many private and public organizations, and I know uh, uh, that you also consult to help organizations. And uh, what are the main key takeaways from your work that you consider crucial for, for leaders to be aware of to enhance their uh, businesses? So, you know, the, I, I would say that um, this is a case where leaders need to be aware of the tension that exists between the, the present and the future and just how I think many of us know just how easy it is to get wrapped up into the present. Um, but to sort of recognize that there is an emotional disconnect between our present and future selves is something that I think not only applies in our personal lives, but also on our professional lives, our lives as sort of professional decision makers and leaders, but also on an organizational level. And this is a, a research topic that I would like to dig into more, which is, you know, um, how do we see the, the present and the future of the organizations that we lead? Um, and how do our constituents, our, you know, our employees or other decision makers see those connections uh, as well. Um, and I recommend thinking about these issues in an effort to get around the sort of short-termism that's so prevalent in so many industries today. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much again, Hal, for joining us today. This was a really interesting conversation. And I think this, this topic is so fundamentally important to so many people. So I'm glad you were able to join us. Can you let our listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much for having me. And uh, if you want to find out more about my work, you can just go to halhirschfield.com, which has all of the links, or you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter uh, as well. Uh, a big thank you, Al. It was a, an amazing conversation. And we do recommend our audience to read uh, the book. I hope uh, this conversation has created a lot of uh, curiosity and you will learn a lot by reading uh, this uh, book with a lot of, I think, fantastic research that you share. Uh, so uh, uh, thanks a lot, Al. Thank you so much. 
Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.